Welcome to Positive Talk Radio. We're glad you're here. I'm Kevin McDonald, your host for this grand adventure, and I thank you for joining us. You see, our mission is to create a positive, personal connection to all things with courage and love. We invite terrific guests, interesting topics, and great conversation, all in a fun, entertaining way. And we always manage to learn something, too. So I hope you will stay right where you are for this episode of Positive Talk Radio. And welcome, everybody, to another episode of uh, uh, Positive Talk Radio. My name is Kevin McDonald. I'm your host. And how are you, Miss Judy Ryan? She is our guest for the hour, and she's a person of note. So we have to pay attention because she's very, very talented at what she does. And uh, we're going to talk all about that today, this hour. How are you? I'm doing well, Kevin. Thank you so much for such nice words, and I'm, I'm excited to be here. Well, we're excited to have you because we are going to learn all about the system that you created, um, and it's a way of living life a little bit differently, and it's a way of getting your business, which I'm really excited to talk about, is getting people's businesses to operate in uh, in a more progressive, uh, positive way than they have in the past. Mm-hmm. Um which would you, would you concur with that? That is that your game and your, your 100%. It's interesting because in your intro, you talk about love. And I always think of this work as how do you bring practical applications of love into the workplace? Because that's really what's needed. And so it is about that. And it's also um, our mission is to create a world where people love their lives. And that means at work too, which a lot of them are not. Well, sadly, at least in uh, the United States, we spend more time at work than we do doing anything else. Right. And if we spend that time being unhappy, then it's really difficult to regather happiness for our the rest of our lives when it's such a big part of it is a pain in the butt. It can be, especially if we're not doing the right work or we're not being the the person that we actually want to be in that work. So it's it's a kind of a combination. And I don't even like to think of it as being two separate things. Um, The way that the evolution of culture is going is such that you should be able to be the same person at work as you are at home, as you are in the in the community. And that's almost a new way of thinking as well. How so? Well, a lot of people think they have to put on a certain kind of game face at work. Oh, yeah. That they have to be very careful about what they say at work. And and there's always going to be some truth to that. But in all reality, if we're really authentic and we are really free to be who we are, we're going to show up the same in both places. And um, it makes me think when we first came on together before the show started, you said, you know, I love doing live because we're I'm imperfect. And it's blindingly clear that I'm imperfect, you know, and. I think our world is better off if we're not trying to hide what we don't know. And we're just jumping into help, not worried about being perfect, not worried about hiding anything. So I, I really feel like the closer we can get to being who we really are in all settings, I think that's a more holistic way to live our lives. Well, one affects the other affects the other. Yes. Um, so if you if you are having a really bad time at work, then it, it does bleed over. It can't help but bleed over to your home life. 
I would agree with that. And I would also say having a bad time at work is often more about what's going on inside of us than what we think is about the people outside of us. And, and that's also sometimes a new way of thinking because most of us think we're, our feelings and our reactions are dependent upon what everyone around us is doing. And while they can have an influence, we're really the greatest influence on how we're feeling and what we're going to do with what we're dealt that day. So um, I just see that all over the place. I see people saying, I'll wait and trust someone when they prove that they're trustworthy, when in reality, you just have to be trustworthy to yourself and true to what you know is the most trustworthy thing to do in each moment, and then let other people do what they're going to do. Um, so it's it's different than the way most of us see it. Most of us see it as we have to have other people around us to make us feel safe. And I, I would disagree with that. I would say be safe yourself and you create an environment where others join you in that. I think that's beautifully said. I wish <laughs> I had said that. That's really well, good. You're welcome to borrow it if you ever want to. <laughs> I'm I'm famous for plagiarism, so I may I may I may take that from you. But uh, you know, it's interesting that you say that because I am a firm believer that, and so, sometimes it gets me into trouble. I'll be honest with you, um, but I'm a firm believer in trust. Mm-hmm. I'm going to trust you until you prove me otherwise. Right, and I'm going to trust me no matter what you do. You know, because that can often draw another person into more honesty, more um, real, real ways of showing up. And a lot of times I see a situation where there's a decision point where you could say something in a trustworthy and open manner. And when you don't, you're not actually trusting yourself to course correct right there in that moment with someone. So maybe somebody's doing something and I'll, you know, and I'm feeling like you're not hearing me, but I don't say anything. Well, that's me not trusting me. And it's me not trusting in the goodness of the other person. So if in that moment I can say, can you slow down a little bit? I'm really not feeling heard by you. Would you, you know, do something to indicate that you're getting what I'm saying? Like, that's just one example. Um, But what most people do is they just ignore those little things that start clouding up the relationship. And right when they're first happening, they're the smallest and easiest to overcome. And yet we avoid doing anything in that moment. Yeah, I, I have a quick, I have a quick story for you, if I may, mm-hmm. that just yeah. happened really recently, that uh, it involves trust. Um, I put out there that I needed some landscaping done, and one of the gentlemen that called me also has a book out that uh, um, that he recently put out, and it's about the ten years he spent in prison. That he was originally was uh, sentenced to like two hundred years, but and and but then through good behavior and stuff like that. He ended up spending 10 years in prison. And um, so he came over to my house and, uh, and I gave him $1,500 for half of the project. Now half of the project when it's done. And uh, I told a friend about this and he goes, hold on, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You gave a convicted felon $1,500. You're never going to see that money again. And you'll never going to see him again. And I said, no, he seemed like a nice guy. And I trust that, my inner, um, my inner knowing was, was accurate and that he would do a good job. Well, two weeks go by. I heard nothing. Another week goes by. I hear nothing. I call him and he says, uh, he actually responds and says, I I'm sorry, man, but I've, I've, I've have a fever. He had caught COVID in the, in the meantime. And so, um, I said, well, get better first and then we'll, we'll deal with 
We'll deal with the uh, landscaping later. He showed up on Friday. That for that's following Friday. He worked until dark. They stayed overnight. Didn't charge me any extra for him having to stay in a hotel because it was too far to go home. He came by the next day. It was raining all day. And they did the, a, a masterful job and got it done. And, uh, and, and I was real pleased with how it was. And, and so you can, if you trust, more often than not, it's been my experience that if you trust people, if you trust an employee, as an example, since we'll put it into the workplace, if you're the boss and you give the employee an assignment and, and they say that they're going to get that done, you trust that they're going to get that done. And uh, you let them do it. I would say yes to that most of the time. I think most of the time, if we hold a positive intention, it's usually um, a self-fulfilling prophecy. I would also say this, though. There's no hard, fast rule about always giving um, that level of trust. Because let's say you were thinking about whether you wanted to pay the $1,500 up front. And there was a part of you that really didn't feel willing to accept the consequences if something were to happen and you had a concern that it could. So, so part of being trustworthy means we're always checking in with ourselves. We're always saying, what am I feeling about this particular situation? And if I make this decision, am I thinking through both the positive and the negative consequences of my choice? So I think what a lot of people want is some sort of certainty in an answer that everyone can just apply evenly. And I don't think it's that simple. I think a lot of times trust is really going inside and going, do I really want to give this person that money up front? Um, is that, you know, is there, what are the benefits of me doing that for them and for me? And what are the possible negative side effects that I could experience? And that really helps you to be trustworthy, which calls forth from the other person a higher level of trust because you've already stepped into your own responsibility. So I, I think your story is beautiful because you had a feeling that this was a good guy and that he had been so open with you that you felt willing to give him that trust. But you might not have, too. And, and so it kind of depends on who the person is that you're dealing with and what your own circumstances are as well. You're exactly right. If, 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 if uh, the little hairs on the back of your neck started to go up when you start talking about giving him, you know, and you felt um, uh, apprehensive about it or it wasn't the right decision to make, mm -hmm. then you have to trust that, too. Exactly. So exactly. That's what I'm really saying about the most important person to trust is ourselves. And then we we tend to call forth in other people a deeper level of trustworthiness from them. I, I think that's that's beautifully done. Now, how do you put that into your system, into the uh, into the folks that you work with? And this is, uh, by the way, we're talking with Judy Ryan. She is the CEO, I do believe, mm -hmm. of of Life Work Systems. How does mm -hmm. your system work? Well, first of all, most people somewhat know that we operate by systems. If you think about our satellite systems, we wouldn't have cell phones if we didn't have them. If we didn't have transportation systems, we'd be running into each other all the time, more than we do. <laughs> so we, we have all kinds of systems. Well, most people don't realize how important and how evolving are human systems. So when we started out, we started talking about trust. Well, trust is just one component within a larger human system that we promote. And everybody has a different version of a system, whether they're consciously aware of it or not. Like if you were to talk to 10 parents and ask them what is good parenting, you'd have 10, probably 10 different ideas of what a good parenting system is and all kinds of sub subsets within that system of each person. So in our model, 
Our model is called a responsibility-based culture model or culture system. And the foundation, we have a little house image that we have. And on the bottom of the house image, there's this foundational component and it's trustworthiness. And so what we tell people is that if you don't have trustworthiness between people as the foundation for your organization, you could have the most skilled workers, you could have the most innovative ideas, the best equipment, the you know greatest opportunities in the marketplace, but you're really likely to still not be successful. And it's kind of like saying I have the most expensive car in the market with all the bells and whistles, but I have a check engine light on. And if I'm going to ignore that, I'm probably going to be in big trouble at some point. And you and can't so, find a mechanic to work on it. Yeah, or you just damage something, you know, that's really costly. And and that's what I see with trustworthiness. Most people, it sounds nice to make trustworthiness important, but in actuality, they're very uncomfortable with making it a top priority. So um, can I, I think I might have mentioned this when we first talked that I had written an article recently called um, Your Greatest Barrier is Your Pain Tolerance. And it was a story about two consultants who were very high paid, very intelligent consultants who were working in a big multinational company. And they were in so much aggression with each other that the customer that they were both working for started to complain to the consulting company. So the consulting company brought me in and I said to both of them, we're going to go through, I'm going to send you these eight behaviors that build trust. And I want you to tell me before you even look at those, what score would you give your relationship? If, if 10 is, oh my gosh, our relationship is very good and there's no unresolved issues. We might not be best friends, but we have no unresolved issues. That's a 10. And if we're about ready to give up on each other, that's a one. I said, I want you to judge this relationship according to that scale. And one of them gave the relationship a one and the other one gave the relationship a two. And I said to them both, and you both wanted to skip over this part? You know, it's like your car is driving down the highway and it's in flames and you just want to ignore that. And so um, they did. They did um, reluctantly agree to start looking at that. And what, what's so fascinating to me is when, when a relationship is in crisis like that, what usually happens is when they look at these eight behaviors and they say, which ones are you neglecting and violating? And which one is the other person neglecting and violating? They're always going to cross a whole bunch more off for the other person. Of By the time it's gotten down to that level, it's all about, I did one thing wrong. They did six things wrong, you know, and that's when you can really see how damaging, whereas if they had looked at their relationship when it slipped from a 10 to a nine, it would have been much easier for them to address whatever happened that caused that little glitch. And they were uh, a one and a two. Yes. Were, were they their primary uh, working uh, partner at work? Um, in this scenario, these were two high level consultants that were brought in in a particular methodology called Agile. And they were both consulting on an Agile transformation within this very large company. And they were there to help support and guide the company in that methodology. And they couldn't even treat each other well. Like there was a lot of disrespect, a lot of um, negative behavior between them. And they didn't, they didn't want to deal with that. They just kept wanting to push through about what was happening on the level of customer decisions. But the customers could even feel how hostile they were. 
Now, were they were they being competitive with one another? They, well, they were, but they weren't supposed to be. So whenever we're in a, a a place of distrust with other people, there is always some level of win lose competition going on. Even if it's simply I'm right, you're wrong. I know better than you. I know you know. I know more than you. I want to win. I want my way. That's always part of what's going on when trust is broken. It's some level of I'm not being straight about something, or I'm not. Um, I'm not being open about something. Straightforwardness is different than being open. Straightforwardness is saying, hey, Kevin, what I want is this, this, and this. Are you willing to give it to me? Where disclosing is more like I'm just telling you what I'm thinking and feeling and going through. But I don't mean psychologically. I just mean around the project or whatever. And I'm open. So sometimes people will say to me, uh, I don't like this other person, but they don't know I don't like them. They think everything's great between us because when I'm with that person, I just I just put it out there that I'm very empathetic. And I said, do you see how dishonest that is? Because you are empathetic, but you're way more than empathetic. You're also frustrated. You're also disappointed. You're also discouraged. And you're also going through some things that you're not admitting to that person. So they're thinking it's a 10 and you're thinking it's a five. And that's part of you not being disclosing, which is breaking trust. How do, how do you teach executives? Because there's a, there's a point in time when, when the executives have to get involved. How do, you, how do you teach them to have direct conversations with people that, that can be progressive and uplifting rather than dictatorial? Well, great question, first of all. And you can even see with these two consultants, they were the authority figures. They were the experts coming in, the high paid leaders in this effort, even if they were working with executives or those under executives. The, the real issue is, do people know how to manage relationships with authority figures? And do authority figures know how to recognize when they're being autocratic and dictatorial? And do they realize how to not be that way? Right. So so it's it's kind of a, a two way street. Let's say I'm uh, the janitor and I see something that's being done that's not fair or right. I also have the ability to be taught how to approach an authority figure in a responsible, trustworthy way. So that's I think maybe, Kevin, I mentioned to you that we almost always open our national and international conferences with a story about an eighth an eighth grade student who was being bullied by a teacher. That's a classic example of a person that's a, more like a direct report in a relationship dealing with an authority figure, whether it's a kid or whether it's a subordinate in a, an organization. I don't even like that word, but you know what I mean? Somebody that's reporting up. Right. So what we teach is how do you help everyone in the environment, whether they're the CEO or the janitor, to know how to manage the relationships they have with everyone at every level? Because that person that's just the janitor could be the one that is the better, more emotionally intelligent and courageous person that will repair that relationship first. It, it is important the executives are bought into the whole system because they hold the greatest amount of power and they can also be the train wreck when you're bringing in a different kind of model if they're unaware of what's going on. I think maybe you're, you're talking a little bit about that. I, I well, I am because I'm I'm thinking that the be, the the greatest amount of positive change can happen if you get buy-in from the executive. I think uh, that's very important, and that's why in the beginning of our projects we survey the highest level of the organization around their culture practices, 
and around um, their, their ability to have all these different behaviors going on and to recognize out of all these challenges we give you, which ones are you experiencing? And out of those, which ones are your top three worst? And, what, and here's 40 workforce behaviors. Which ones do you wish you had, but you don't have? Oh, I want an environment where there's no gossip. Don't have that. Check that box. Right. So a lot of it is it's kind of like when we take inventory of our body. Sometimes we're like, OK, I'm overweight. I haven't been exercising. You know, my my cholesterol's high or whatever. Like all of those things make us wake up to what we might need to take care of. So what happens with our organization is we bring survey in a survey in that is the highest we can get buy in to even do the survey. And when they do that survey, they have a lot of ahas. They're ready to talk. They're ready to sit down and talk with us about, oh, my gosh, this report card I got back on my culture really woke me up. I'd like to know more about what we can do about some of this. In, in, in your uh, line of work and in your experience, how many companies midsize to large actually work on culture? work on creating the culture that they want or is it something that just ends up being based upon the personalities of the people that are involved i think it's a whole range of things i think that there are more thought leaders writing about and talking about certain types of culture evolution like if i talk about mine what i would be saying is the characteristics of the model we do are that we combine the individual's rights with the collective both, both are needed. We, we, we share about the importance of freedom and responsibility co coexisting. We talk about shared power and shared responsibility. We talk about helping people to be leaders and followers, both in the same human beings. And we really help them to understand what does it mean to become an inductive reasoner so that you can create things on the fly because the way the world is moving, the speed of change, the complexity, you cannot stand around waiting for other people to tell you what to think and what to say and what to do. You have to be able to be um, a heuristic responder, not an algorithmic, just give me the rule, right? That's not going to make it. And, and people need to come to a place where they are committed to being holistic within themselves and between the, the community of the workplace. So those are the characteristics of the kind of model we have. But some organizations are learning about that kind of model, but they have no idea how to implement. And maybe they're just reading a book and trying to put a tool in place, or they're reading a book and they're trying to bring in some sort of a workshop. And maybe they're only doing it for the top leaders. They're not doing it all the way down to the front line. And so, so uh, it's both what kind of model and how is it best adopted so that it really sticks and it really shifts the whole paradigm. It's just an old phrase, but it really is about shifting the whole paradigm and being sure that people don't just say that was interesting um, and let me fall back into what I always do. I always got a kick out of the company. I've worked at several companies that have had uh, what are called team building exercises. Mm -hmm. And um, so they, they hire somebody to come in and we'd play games and we would play, you know, about and we'd team up amongst each other and that kind of stuff. And then we'd go back to work and uh, the same things, the same problems would be there that we had before that because they were never addressed. They were That's exactly right, Kevin. You are so right, because it is helpful to have those moments where there's encouragement and there's joy and there's 
fun together and, and there's appreciation together and all those things are good, but you also need people that know how to, how do I discuss a frustration? How do I eliminate gossip? How do I help myself go get healthy venting instead of unhealthy venting, which is gossip? How do I manage negative behavior without reacting in a harsh, punitive, or bribing or permissive way? Most people, if you even ask them those questions, they're like, well, what else is there? So, so I really believe that team building is one little bitty piece. I even say tools are one little bitty piece. We have over 30 tools in our work. And I, I always caution people, don't be overly eager about the tools because a fool with a tool is still a fool. And that's Ooh. really, really true. I need um, to write that down. That's yeah, cool. I know. I, I actually took that from somebody that said that to me. And I was like, I'm writing an article about that. And, and I had a really good, um, I think I might've told you this story. So I, I'll, if, uh, if you want me to stop, you can stop me. But um, I think I told you that when we go into a larger company, like a company that has 600 people or more, you know, or even less, we'll usually come in and we'll just do what we call internally, we call it a skim project. It's called the leader review. It's where the leaders just go through all of the content and tools in the whole system, which is about 24 hours of training and, you know, a little bit of engagement. It's not what we normally do in a client site. Normally when we go on a client site, everybody's doing individual online module reviews and, and doing a workbook and then filling out a post-training survey and then leading small groups and participating every month in small group reviews. And then they're practicing what they learned in their mentoring. So it's a very immersive process. We call that the deep, the deep dive projects. But when we first come into a large organization, the most important first step is that the senior team, the CEO, the senior team, and everyone in the management levels understands what is this thing we're transforming into? So they go through this review. Well, there were 10 leaders out of uh, about 52 leaders who the, the, the one of the C-suite executives called me and she said, we're having this problem in this little department of eight leaders. And I don't, you know, I don't know for sure what we should do. We're all in your review program, like as if that would be enough. And I said, what's going on? And she said, the top leader of these eight said something bad about me in a meeting. And two of the people from his team came to me and told on him. And then I went and told on him to his boss. <laughs> it was like, and, and I stopped her and I said, do you remember that you all learned and actually did a mind trust, which is a tool to stop gossip? And the mind trust goes like this, Kevin, I promise you, I won't say bad things about you behind your back. Kevin, if I have a problem with you, I will go directly to you to talk to you about it. Kevin, if someone says anything bad about you, I promise I'll stop them. And I'll just say, I'm sorry, I don't listen to people say bad things about Kevin because we have a mind trust. And I'll also try really hard to get that person to go to you instead of taking that grudge to other people or holding it in. And, I, and, and she knew this tool. And they all knew this tool. They had all practiced it like you would in a team building session, right? And it felt really good. I said, when these two people came to town, did you think to ask them, why didn't they go directly to the guy? Because they have a mind trust with him. And she said, no, I didn't even think about it. And I said, did you ask those two people if they stopped him when he was saying bad things? She goes, no, I didn't think about that. And I said, did you think about going directly to the guy when you found out he was saying bad things instead of his boss? And she said, no, I didn't think about it. In fact, his boss was in the meeting and he didn't stop the guy either. And then she said, she goes, what is wrong with all of us? We're not doing it, you know? And she was actually really kind of harsh on herself. Like, why are we 
not remembering to do this. And I said, the reason you're not remembering is because in the very beginning, you're so unconscious about gossip and triangulation that when you finally learn about it, now you've gotten to a level where you went from unconsciously incompetent to consciously incompetent. And I said, in that situation, you weren't even consciously incompetent until right in this moment. She goes, I can see that. And I said, you know, remember, that's the stage at which we feel the most uncomfortable because we feel like, for God's sake, I know better. Why wouldn't I do better? But as human beings, it takes time for us to build up our conviction and our courage and our commitment. And it doesn't have to take a lot of time, but there's a grace period that we need. And, and it's so funny, Kevin, I was raised Catholic and it, there was no grace period. Like once you knew better, if you didn't do better, off to hell with you, you know? And, and I, I just don't subscribe to that. I believe as human beings, we need to have that compassion and mercy and lighten up about ourselves so that when we're learning, we're okay that, oh my gosh, there I went again, consciously incompetent. At least I'm not unconsciously incompetent in this moment, right? And yep. so um, I told her, I said, really, until you really absorb something fully, you're all going to be a little bit like a fool with a tool because you have the tool, but you didn't remember to even reference it. And that's what that means. Uh, and part of it is that we rush to try to stop something like gossip with a tool when the first step is just understanding why do I like to gossip so much? Why is it hard for me to give that up? Why is it scary for me to go to somebody directly instead of, uh, you know, like just holding all that in? All those questions are very deeply personal and reflective. And most people, um, they just don't like to even go inside and ask themselves that kind of stuff. Why is that? I think it's because we've all been raised with so much punishment and reward uh, belief systems. When we teach this one class called Redirecting Negative Behavior, People go very deep into realizing, wow, I have been part of contributing to the negative behavior when it shows up. Like my reaction is definitely making it worse. And I didn't even see how it was happening. And they and I remember I was just recently in that group of 52 leaders. And one of the leaders afterwards came on in the after we call it the party after the party. It's like people that want to stay and just ask us extra questions. And she said, well, what do I do if I'm the leader and I'm seeing all these negative behaviors and I'm the one doing all of them, you know? And, and she was like, she, her, her CEO was sitting in that call and she didn't even care. She was just like, help me, you know? And, and I said, all that means is right now you're just woken up. You woke up to the fact that you've been doing these negative behaviors, but it doesn't mean you were trying to or that you had any evil intent. You just were never taught how to look at it from a different perspective. And, and she was kind of um, discouraged about that. And I said, you know, just remember, you're in that stage of competently or uh, consciously incompetent. And you get to practice mercy right here. You know, it's, it's interesting that do you have to have buy in from the top executive to even come in to, um, to work on this or do it, they know, have to recognize that there's a problem? It, it, you have to have some level of buy-in from the top, but it doesn't. It isn't always all of the people from the top. Like we had, uh, we've had clients where maybe the CIO or the COO has the buy-in. It's high enough that they have they have authority over budget. They have authority over how the the department is run or the area is run. We've had companies where the CEO and the CFO were so opposite of our culture model, but they saw the results in the departments that were using it. So they would um, they would support it and they would financially support it. 
And even when there was an area that would have a problem, they would say, well, you might want to go get that life work stuff. But they themselves would not do the life work stuff. You know, like they had not said, I'm going to be the one to lead this charge. So what's really important with executive buy-in isn't so much that every single executive has to buy in. That's ideal. That's ideal. With these 52 leaders, we've already got four or five of them asking for deep dive projects in their departments. And that's what, and they're aware why they need that. Um, but not everyone in that group of 52 is all that bought in because people say yes to things at different paces. You always have a certain amount of people who are the early adapters and the innovators. And then you have kind of the moderate adapters. Well, I'm a little cynical, but I, it sounds like there could be some good stuff in this. And you kind of just have to have the balance of the entirety to give you some successes. Um, but some of those companies that don't have the buy-in from every senior leader, as long as they're not disrupting the culture model where it's existing, that's good enough for us. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, you know, it's, it seems to me that it's an enlightened way of doing business. It's a better way of doing business. And so consequently, doesn't uh, don't the numbers improve with a company that is uh, operating well and is using your system and there's not a lot of backbiting and there's not a lot of uh, trouble within? Don't, don't, don't they find that uh, their uh, productivity improves, their absenteeism goes down, turnover goes down, all that kind of thing? It, it is true, but I will tell you, this is kind of a weird analogy, but it's pretty fitting right now. You know, we have the war between Russia and Ukraine, and part of that is because there's a, a system that believes in win-lose and a system that's trying to go for win-win. And they're not perfect at it by any means, but they're trying to. And, and so what's really happening in that whole dynamic is the same thing that's happening within companies. The old school way of operating with, hey, it's just more efficient, more effective and more profitable to be top down. That is a belief system that's been there for, for centuries. And so now you have people starting to kind of question that and saying, well, what if we tried this representative way of operating and we got really good at it, but it doesn't happen overnight. So there's a lot of fear, like a lot of people that have risen to the top in an organization, they're kind of fat and happy that way. They sure. got there, they might've even stepped on a bunch of necks to get there, but they know that world. So what I always say about leaders is the, the reason it's not most companies yet, is because most companies are comfortable with win-lose. And in order to say, I'm going to get out of my own comfort zone and try something that I believe is a higher uh, priority way of operating in a company, it takes a very powerful, positive ego to do that. And most people think of an ego as a bad thing, but a, po a powerful, positive, loving ego is an incredible force for anything. And so the leaders who are willing to change an entire culture system are usually those who can see the bigger picture vision of what's possible, and they can hold that enough to hang in there through their own fear or whatever. But there's a whole bunch of people out there that I don't care if the Titanic is sinking. We've always done it this way. And I just want to do it the way I know, even if it's not working. And that's really kind of sad. Well, it's, it's, since you brought it up that way, it does make a lot of sense that a CEO or a, an executive, a, a high-level guy, he's been doing it this way his entire life, mm -hmm. and it's been successful for him, but not probably successful for a lot of people around him. But I would even it, say that if he looked closely or she looked closely, it hasn't been for him or her. 
because often there's a huge price tag that comes with not making people important, not making the, the wellness of the entirety important. You know, even um, we do one of our tools is called appreciative inquiry, and it's a pretty complex system for an individual and a, a whole collective so that you're creating things out of the, the greatest strengths and successes within an organization and what sort of gifts do we all have and what sort of things do we want to have happen in the future and having a collective around that well that's that creates this amazing uplifting powerful energy that everything gets created from but what most of us do is we're used to creating even a change through a problem orientation and a problem energy and so when we do that um, like a good example of this would be, Kevin, I don't know if you're married, but let's say you were married and you had a problem with your wife. If you went to a traditional problem solving therapist, they would say, OK, what's the problems? What are the problems? And maybe your wife says, well, Kevin never helps around the house. And then the, the therapist might say, well, why do you think that's happening? And then she might say, well, I know why his mother spoiled him and he never had to do anything. And now he thinks he should be spoiled in this marriage, you know. And imagine that kind of conversation is creating all kinds of defensiveness and arguments and, and negativity. But if you were with an appreciative inquiry, and this is not about therapy, this is about just an example. So if you were with a, a person who was a, a believer in appreciative inquiry, the first thing they would say to you is, I know you guys are here because you have a problem. But before we get into that, tell me the stories about when you were most in love. What were you saying about each other? What were you thinking about each other? How did you feel about each other? What were some of the fun things you did together when you were first in love? And then he might or she might say, um, I know you have some problems, but what works in your relationship? Oh, you're great. You both agree pretty strongly in the same way of handling your finances. Or, oh, you're really, really aligned when it comes to parenting. Or, you know, so now you're looking at all these things you do well together. And maybe the next question would be futuristic. So, Kevin, if you could describe the story of your marriage the way you could see it at its best, what would you be telling people about your marriage? What would you be telling each other? What would you be thinking and feeling and what would be happening? And by the time you get done with all of those kinds of questions, now you can paint a picture of a vision that you want to build toward as a, part, uh, as a um, very different than um, focusing on what you don't want. So like even with this war, I see the Ukrainians saying, we don't want to be attackers. We don't want to be on the offense. We will defend ourselves because we want freedom more than anything. And we will even be willing to die for it. So that's a, a country that's holding a very high vision of itself, its people, and its future. And what the reason a lot of the strong men are winning in some parts of the world is because people will get discouraged when there's democracies that are fraught with problem conversations all the time. They're slow, they're painful, they cause dissension. So there's people that would say, well, democracy just doesn't work. Well, it doesn't work if we're coming at it from the problem orientation, just like that kind of old school marriage therapy probably doesn't work most of the time. Exactly. Well, and I'll, I'll tell you the, uh, the uh, Ukraine situation, you know, with with Russia, if I were Russia, I would be very, very concerned right now because they the right and the and the, 
well, the right and the and and the and the people that are really most engaged are the ones that 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 are trying to save their own lands and want to be free and don't want to be told what you know within their borders what they can do and not do. I would even say it's bigger than that, Kevin. I would say that because of the success, even though it's imperfect, of so many of the democratic countries. Russian people are also dissatisfied with the autocracy. And that's the greatest threat to an autocrat. And that's the greatest threat in our business workplaces is um, when somebody's holding on to rule by intimidation, and that's all they think of as their superpower. It's very hard for them to give that up. So I always say what's happening in the bigger world between Russia and Ukraine as an example, and what's happening in workplace culture is that People hold a very high expectation of perfection, which takes time. And they also hold a lot of fear around um, what what is this going to mean about me? Like, what if I'm no longer, what if I'm outdated? Or they, they have a fear of losing some kind of relevancy. And in reality, if they actually can create the next level of evolution, they are more relevant, more admired more loved, more respected, more influential. That's what's happening right now with Zelensky. And I know that I'm pulling it back and forth from company to uh, politics, but it's the same dynamics. of. It is. It is. And, and Zelensky is as, as really energized his people and a good executive has the ability to energize his entire organization by how he behaves. It's, it's it, the intention and the commitment that he has, and you can feel it in everything he says. Yep. It's a humane, um, we're all brothers and sisters. We all deserve to be treated a certain way. I mean, you can feel intention is everything. And and he would be, in my opinion, some people would say, oh, he's just a good actor. I don't think a person can act in a way that's that influential and maintain that. And I, I think he has shown himself to be a sincere person. At least well, time will tell, I guess. But that's what he appears to be. And that's why he pulls at all of us, because he holds a high intention and a high vision yes. for his people and even for himself and does not operate from limitation and fear. And, and, uh, the, and, uh, the guy on the other side, Putin has been trying to get the admiration of his people for his entire career. Hasn't been able to do it because you can't do it from an auto from a dictatorship like that. Well, that's the, that's the rub, Kevin. There are some people that still admire the dictators. Not the ones that are under their boot. Only, only... Yeah, it's probably true. The, the vast masses are not for it. But there are a lot of people in high positions of power, even in our country, that love the strong man. And they want to, um, they don't care who is hurt in that process because they admire what they consider to be power, in my view, is actually pseudo power. Real power comes from this intention of, um, we care about the whole. We don't just care about the people at the top. We care about everyone. Right. And, right. and you, you know, leaders like that and they're, uh, but you also see how they disrupt the old way and they're often crucified for it. So being a person to up level your evolution in your workplace culture is not for the faint of heart. Oh no, no, you, you, it can cause, it can cause you and your career lots of problems. You can get it back. Can. It can. And I think the biggest problem, though, is if you don't believe it yourself. Correct. But once you know it and you're clear about what you're doing and why you're doing it, other people will start raising their own level of responsibility right next to you. 
Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. You know, I could talk to you about this stuff for hours. You, I know. <laughs> you are very, very gifted at what you do. Well, and, thank you. Uh, and it's it's pretty awesome. And I would really like and implore if you are a, an executive, look at your own culture. If it's if it's lacking, if if it's not getting you where you if you say you want to go to Seattle, but you're on a road to go to San Jose, you might want to think about changing directions and trying something you haven't done before. And uh, I would I would advocate that you uh, uh, talk to Judy at uh, LifeWork Systems and see what uh, what what they can do for you because it's they've got a complete program. I've been looking at your website. It's 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 really is you can you can help somebody actually change the entire culture of their of their environment. We can and we do. It's just that it's people are so used to fast food mentality. You know, like we should be able to just do a workshop and be done with it, you know, and, and that's the that's the biggest challenge we have is not only what kind of culture you might want to really consider, because that's a big deal right in itself, but how you immerse your people in the process is crucial to whether it takes. And, and that's the hardest part. Uh, and, and a lot of people, they don't even know that there are implementations out there. So I appreciate you saying that you've taken a look and that you think I have something meaningful here. Um, that's the part that we get challenged by is, is we have to have a little bit of time to educate people on why this implementation, why does it take this much time? Well, you take, you take, it's like herding cats. You take a hundred executives, put them in a room and you're going to get 99 different viewpoints. Uh, because everybody's got a different life experience and it's done that. But the reality is what you've got is you've got numbers behind what you do and you've got a, a track record of success. We do. And I would say um, even your mentality, and I, I don't mean this is an insult, is 100 executives. I would say put a bunch of executives in a group of 100 that includes their mid-level managers, their receptionists, their frontline people. Then you have a whole different dynamic. When my children, I have five children, when they were growing up, by the time each one of them was five years old, they knew how to run a family meeting because we taught them how to both lead and follow from the time they were five. We taught them how to do things that most families weren't teaching. And I say this because in workplaces, we still have this unequal idea about where the people need to be developed, that they need to be developed at the top. Well, the top needs to be bought in because they're the one that holds the purse strings and the greatest you know, uh, responsibility and authority. But the, um, it's equally important that the levels are broken down. So when we do a project, other than this leader review where they're just learning at the leadership level what this even is, we say when you go into a deep dive project, do not make it all executives. Make it executives with mid-levels with you know, a mixture and really cross-function that way because there's nothing more powerful then being led by the executive and the next month you're the one leading and the executive is following you. There's huge breakage of, um, of those levels, unnecessary barriers between the levels. Like a, a CEO is still going to be the CEO with a different set of responsibilities, but on a human level, we all showed up on equal footing. And that is what is often missing in an organization is, is the, um, the separation between the levels is so great that there's not a feeling of we are one. Exactly. And, and when you talk about, you know, the pyramid, which is the executive at the top, and then you got the vice presidents and all that stuff. It's not until you get down to the, to the level of the people. And it always astounded me that the, the, 
the people who are in direct contact with your customers, which are considered to be at the lower end or the lower level of the pyramid, they're the ones that by and large are going to make your um, um, companies succeed or fail. 100% agree. 100%. And they're often um, treated as though they're lower. They're not yes. truly lower, but that's the mentality. And that's why people get away with, like, I don't know if you've studied Dan Price. Dan Price is the, have you heard of him? Do you know who, yes. that, who he is? I have heard of him. So he's the guy who has a company where he won't like let anyone make less than $70,000. That's the guy. Yeah. yeah. And he won't let his top paid people, including himself, he won't let them make more than four times the lowest person. So by the time you get to $280,000 in his company, if you want to make more than that, you have to go somewhere else because he believes in equity. He doesn't believe in the kind of disparity where the CEO makes 380 times more than the lowest paid person. And that can only come when we stop thinking of people on those levels. And that only happens when we're in the same room with them more often. And we get to see who they actually are instead of us having this puffed up idea of I'm this and they're down here and vice versa. They do the same thing to you. A lot of people are in a negative situation with somebody because they're holding themselves as less. So, True. you know, even as a woman, like we don't make as much money sometimes as, as men are making in the same job. But sometimes we are also participating in in allowing that. And I don't mean there should be a fight, but I think that there's almost a feeling of I don't deserve it because I'm a woman. I mean, I, I don't think that's a conscious thing. I just believe it's it wouldn't wouldn't be happening if we weren't still a little bit there. No, I agree. I agree. And uh, and we need to wrap up this hour. But I wanted to ask you before we go, have you have you heard of the great uh, uh, resignation, the great awakening or the great um, what, what is your concept? What are you thinking about? Are, are companies going to have to start to wake up that if their culture isn't right and people feel like their life is too short, that they're, regardless of how much money they make, they're going to go somewhere else? Yeah, I actually wrote an article. It's called Seize Opportunities Within the Great Resignation because the Great Resignation is a great reset. That's often what it's called as well. And I like it being called the Great Reset. Because what it's forcing people to do, and the reason I think it's occurring is that more and more people are saying, this win-lose stuff stinks and I don't want to do, I don't want to be part of that anymore. And there's, and it's so visible because of everybody living in a fishbowl. So what used to be kind of hidden away where we were taking advantage of people and it's more public now. And so it's really an opportunity. There are a lot of holdouts, Kevin. There are a lot of people that say, all I care about is the bottom line. They may not say it out loud, but that's really what they're thinking. And they don't want to give a darn about the happiness of their people, but they're eventually going to see that they're going to be left in the, in the dust, you know, and it's becoming more apparent. So even the, the people that don't want to do that, they're, they're starting to realize it's really going to cost me if I don't do that. Well, isn't it true that um, um, companies get reputations? And if a company gets a reputation amongst the the general uh, uh, population of who they're trying to go after as an employee, and they get this reputation of being a less than desirable place to work, oh, they're not going to get the good people. It's really pretty horrible. I was um, I don't want to go on and on because I know you want to wrap this up, but I was just talking to somebody who was lost from a company. Uh, she was pursued, and probably if her company had come to her and said, "Are we at a 10? She and, and how's your feeling of productivity and how's your sense of engagement with us? She would have been able to answer those questions in a way where they would have had an opportunity to change their behavior and made it a 10. 
because she wasn't at a six or a five or a four. She was at an eight with them. And another company was able to steal her away. And they were so shocked and disappointed. And they and they handled it really well. But it, to me, it was a sad loss because companies not realizing where their people are, are like in, in another company, they said they lost, they're going to lose 14 people in one day because nobody is checking in at certain levels to know what's going on. And that's happening all over the place where people are finding out too late that they should have fixed something three months ago. And that's very, very expensive. It's expensive, in, in, yeah. In, in hiring the right people. I, I have a uh, philosophy that, I, that if you lose a key employee, it's going to take you five hires to replace that employee. I would agree. And I think it, it's also very bewildering to the, the senior people because they don't see it coming a lot of the time. No. And then they're like, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do now? We're going to be shorthanded. And so it, it takes a, t a toll on everybody that uh, um, something that could have been prevented. And I just can't tell you how many stories I see of that all over the place. And it's simply because we have such a pain tolerance for tolerating things until all of a sudden they just blow up. And it's unfortunate. It, it it really is, and and I applaud your work, and I hope more people uh, will will uh, get involved and get involved with you and their companies because it's it's we deserve as human beings we deserve to have a nice life, and when you're well, we would even go a little further and say you deserve a life you love. Hey, that's <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> yeah. And Kevin, I really hope I, I hope I really say from your mouth to God's ears, because I really sometimes it, it hurts me to see how many people are suffering and they don't know how to find a solution like ours. And, and yeah. I wish I wish there was a simpler way to get the word out. So I really thank you for even speaking it into hopefully into reality and and for giving me this platform to talk about it. Well, you you're you you have a disciple in me. You can come back anytime you like. <laughs> Well, gosh, we don't have any trouble. I can't believe an hour is up already. I know it's it goes really fast. Yeah, it goes really fast because you know you are. Um, I firmly believe that we have to change how we treat each other in business, and not, not only that, they'll, what they'll find is that they make that it's a better run business. They're happier. Everybody's happier when when everything is running properly and positively and and everybody feels like they're contributing and and everybody's excited about the future of the company and stuff. Those I are the agree. And, and, you know, even you and I having this conversation, Kevin, is what should be happening in all companies. It, it, it takes men and women raising each other up together and building something together. It's not just it's the old and the young. It's the it's the men and the women. It's just all of us having the kind of respect I feel with you today that's missing in a lot of places because there's no attention to that. And so it means a lot to me that you are a man in the world out there trying to bring positivity to the world. And you, you care enough about me as a woman leader to say, I want to give you that platform. And that, that's like, that's like part of the um, secret sauce of the world is what you've done with me. And, and I'm, I'm super grateful for you having the willingness to do that. Well, of course. And one last thing before we go is that I can't believe in this day and age, I've, I've met some incredibly talented people. Um, a lot of them are women. And uh, for somebody to offer a woman 25% less or whatever it is, 18% or because they can is to me a moral failing. 
because they it, it should be it should be equal based upon what they can bring to the table. Well, there's a saying, and and, and in fact, there was a um, I'll, I'll try to say it really fast. There was a, a Twilight Zone that I never forgot, and it was about this guy who dies and he sees these pearly gates and all these people are there and they're like, "We're here to give you whatever you want," you know. And, Every day he asks for something bigger and bolder, you know, like I want a, I want a, you know, fancy sports car and I want a mansion and all this. By the end of the week, he's kind of bored and restless. And he says, I thought heaven would be more fun. And the guy says to him, who says you're in heaven? <laughs> you know, isn't that amazing? And so I, I think the reason it's a moral failing is because we've taught people to think that's the end all be all. That's why we have gorgeous, talented celebrities who commit suicide because it's not the right wall that the ladder is up against. Can you can you imagine somebody like in, in my lifetime, Freddie Prinze? Mm -hmm. I didn't, he was like 23 years old. He was uh, he was a budding superstar and he took his own life at 23. Such yeah. a waste. Because, Such a waste. because there's this belief that if I get more and get more and get more and I am more that I'm going to be happy and all of a sudden it, it's just empty. And That's so it is sad. Um, but yeah, so hopefully people will think about that too. Exactly right. Judy Ryan has been our guest. Go to lifeworksystems.com. Find out more about her. You can contact her at Judy at lifeworksystems.com. And they got a, a bunch of great stuff. Thank you for being here. I hope Thank we've you, a different Thank you so much. And I would love to speak to anybody who wants to reach out to me. I would absolutely love to meet your audience. So thank you. Absolutely. Now and in the future, somebody's going to reach out to you. I promise. <laughs> if, if you stay right there, I'll be right back. Okay. Thanks for enjoying this episode all the way to the end. Please give us a like and subscribe to this channel. This has been a production of kmmedia.pro. Please visit our website, oddly enough, named kmmedia.pro for more details about us and our mission, which is to provide great, positive programming designed to inspire us all. I'm Kevin McDonald, and I'm proud of these shows, and I truly hope that you'll like them and share them with friends and family. So on behalf of our entire team, remember, be kind to each other, because each other's all we've got. We'll see you next time.